I want to invite all of us to turn in our Bibles again to Galatians chapter 6. We're on the home stretch of this great epistle, and I thought that there was just a kind of a nice little postlude, and we'd be done with this book of the Bible, but uh, there's a couple more sermons in here, and we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11 this morning. Galatians 6, listen as I read, beginning at verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, this is going to be the beginning of probably a one, two, three final sermon um, ending for Galatians. So this will be the first one. And here God promises something that uh, isn't like the readily welcomed promises that we typically hang on to. God's promises of forgiveness and spiritual growth and perfect heaven, these are what believers feed on, right? This is what we love and live on through the travails of life. There's also other promises, and there are promises that we'd readily do without, and one of them is the promise of John 15, 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Second Timothy three twelve. indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, here it is, will be persecuted. Hebrews 12, 4 In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. What's embedded in that verse is that, hey, you can keep persevering through all kinds of trials because you haven't been killed yet, so keep going. Persecution is coming for every Christian. Every Christian like Christ will suffer persecution, and the Bible tells us why. Embedded in these Three verses we're going to cover this morning answers why we're persecuted. I sarcastically titled the message, Avoiding Christian Persecution. How do you avoid Christian persecution? Well, you act like the people that Paul is confronting here at the conclusion of the letter. But just to summarize, I've put together a little 
phrase or idea of why we're persecuted biblically. Being persecuted means you are standing out from what's sinful in the world and you're making what's sinful in the world feel uncomfortable. And that provokes what's sinful in the world to try and stop you. We're persecuted because people want to stamp out something that's making them feel very, very uneasy. We stand in contrast to the world. We stand in contrast to the sinfulness of the world. And that's what draws persecution. This is the cost of discipleship. This is what you and I signed up for when we decided to follow Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 is uh, talking through his persecution, comparing himself to false teachers. False teachers in the church were accusing Paul of not being a super, a super teacher like they were. Who pair teacher? Who pair apostle? Super apostle. And so Paul was somehow lesser than they. He says in verse 20, 2 Corinthians 11, for you bear it. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say we are too weak for that. He's being sarcastic. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He again is using sarcasm here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater laborers, laborers, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, which that last verse speaks not of the outward persecution, all these things that are written for us to anticipate or to measure in terms of our own experience, to think that something like this could happen to us. But verse 28 is something that often does happen within the church, the pressure of church, the pressure of church life, the pressure, oh, thanks, the pressure of, uh, of dynamics that happen within the church. God allows persecution, again, to distinguish truth from error, from who are true to whom are false. And undergoing persecution authenticates the power of the gospel to persevere through tough times that are brought on by your Christian walk vindicates the power of the gospel. You say, why is this happening to me? Well, it's happening to you by and large, to prove out that God's strength and power is enough and sufficient and powerful to get you through. I talked to people even this week who speak of Christian persecution inside their home. 
I can't read my Bible openly. I can't give to the church freely. I can't say Christian things openly in my home. Those types of persecutions are happening behind shut doors, the very things that we talk about in terms of Christianity internationally, right, where Christianity is illegal. Well, those same kinds of obstructions, those same kinds of hardships and anxieties happen in home life all the time. God promised to bring a sword in the home. That's what Jesus said. He, he didn't just unify homes in the gospel, but he predicts that father and mother will go against each other, husband and wife. Those things happen within the home, and yet nothing will stop the church. Nothing will stop it. It will grow. It will succeed. In liturgical circles, this is called the church triumphant, those who've suffered persecution and now are in eternal union with God. Tertullian said, or he's claimed to have said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You've heard that before. Acts 7 vindicates that. The church was not growing at the first outside of Jerusalem. It needed to get pushed. Somebody needed to die for the faith for it to go to Judea, Samaria, and the outer parts of the earth. The person chosen for this mission was Stephen. And Stephen confronted the Sanhedrin. He confronted the elders and scribes of the council. He was, he was surrounded, and, and there, was, there were people who were hearing him preach and who called the religious ones to surround Peter to kill him for his sermon. And so if I said Peter, I mean Stephen. Stephen stood boldly, and Stephen gave a redemptive historical sermon like no other in Acts 7. Starting with Abraham, he went to Moses, he went to David, he went to Solomon, and ultimately to Christ. And in Acts 7.52, he talks of Christ, the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and crucified. In Acts 7.51, he had just said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you won't hear the truth. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. Stephen was not pulling punches. He knew that he was going to pay for what he was saying with his life, I believe, as they gathered stones. Saul was there overseeing this stoning event, and Stephen gave his life. The, the crowds rushed Stephen, jamming their fingers in their ears, symbolically saying, I'm not going to hear it. We are going to harden our hearts to what you were saying and call it blasphemy and try to snuff you out because it's not you who are making us uncomfortable. It's your message that's making us uncomfortable. It's the guilt of our sin because we have killed the Messiah that is making us uncomfortable. And so they killed him. And then Saul ramped up the persecution who became Paul. And then Philip began preaching in Samaria. It pushed the gospel out, that's what persecution does, out to the outermost parts of the earth. Risking persecution, it emboldens the church like dry tinder to say, you know what, we're going to light up for the faith. If the heat comes on, we're going to get stronger. So what does modern persecution look like? Now, Nathan should be credited with this. Nathan, our worship pastor, last weekend, Worship in the Round, this was his introduction. And I looked it through a little bit. I just wanted to bring it up again. There's kind of a 
soft moving to hard coercion that's taking place through the California State Assembly, where they just passed a ban, I mean a bill to ban the sale of books expressing Christian orthodox beliefs about sexual morality, or I should say immorality. The bill states it's unlawful, it's an unlawful business practice to engage in a transaction intended to result or that results in the sale or lease of goods or services, Bibles, to any consumer. Just insert Bible there. And, or to advertise or to offer to engage in or to engage in uh, um, the, the sale of or distribution of, of goods that would in any way disparage the sexual orientation of someone and the idea that literature could, could be sold for the change efforts of an individual. Listen, these bans or these, the, these laws that could be coming into our country, they could ban licensed counselors. They could ban religious ministries. This could be hard coercion around the corner, but there's also soft coercion. There was a college that recently came out, a, a scholar who was espousing how the church has always evolved with the culture. The culture has always changed, and as it evolves, the church changes right with it. And there's a good proof to be made or a, you know, a good um, proof to be shown that the church has evolved with the culture. Maybe not the true church, but the superficial um, Changes of the church that make allowances for sin could be documented through church history. There's a new book and seminar that I just clicked on, saw an advertisement for just this week. um, That's talking about the gospel's believability and relevance. And this is by a, a known conservative pastor. But ultimately he's saying you don't believe the gospel because the Bible says so. You believe the gospel because of history and historical credibility and witnesses like Peter, James, and John and multiple evidences. So there's really no need. He ultimately uses the example of there's no need to really land hard and strong on Genesis 1 creationism. You don't have to take the Bible for it. it the gospel is an event. And so there's this, there's this subtle way that people come in the back door to undermine the credibility and the power of Scripture. The gospel is the Bible. Uh, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that all of the Old Testament is about who? Him. Jesus said the, the law and the prophets are about him. The apex event of the death, burial, and resurrection is the good news of the gospel. But the gospel is then explained throughout Pauline literature. The New Testament is the gospel. The book of Revelation is the gospel. The good news flows from the scripture, not external evidences. There's one surefire way to avoid being persecuted, and that is to compromise truth. Compromise truth. Do not stand for truth. Make the gospel about something else but the truth. Make the gospel wide not narrow. Make the gospel an option, not the way. That's how you can avoid persecution. You may inadvertently be avoiding the faith altogether if you go that route because persecution and faithfulness go hand in hand. Galatians 6.12, 
This is right in the middle of our text. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This forcing of circumcision is a compromise of truth. The truth of the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith alone, which is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is the gospel, the one true gospel. We're saved by faith alone, not by works. So these summary verses expose these opponents of Paul who are really opponents of the gospel. And though Paul is exposing these opponents in these verses, he's exposing their error. He's rebuking them for avoiding persecution, and he's exposing the error of a works-based gospel. Paul is ending the book of Galatians strongly. The question here really comes down to whether or not you believe in a Holy Spirit miracle birth that When you become a Christian, you are a new creature in Christ. You're a new creation. Look at verse 15, the last two words of verse 15. You're a new creation. You didn't work your way into being saved. God made you new. That reference that Pastor Steve, you just mentioned about spring, the miracle of new life. It's it's a picture of salvation, being born again, being brought to life. That's salvation. So how do you avoid persecution? Well, first of all, you have to boast in yourself. You have to glory in what you do. If you want to avoid persecution, you have to be about you. Or just, you could outline it, be prideful. Be prideful. Take the path of least resistance. And Paul here is concerned to warn against people like this, his opponents. He wants to end The letter with full clarity on the truth. That's his primary objective. He's made plenty of warnings about the opponents. He wants to bang the drum one more time and say, this is the gospel. He does so by exposing external motivations and exposing, in doing so, a false gospel. And in doing so, propping up the cross of Christ. The true motivation of everything is glorying in Christ and glorying in the cross. The cross is everything to Paul. It's the decisive turning point in human history. It inaugurates the age of the new creation. Galatians 1, 4, it's where he began. Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So make an, an emotional impression, charged impression at the end here. Look at verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul is said to perhaps right at the end be grabbing up or snatching up the reed pen from his amanuensis. Maybe he's been dictating to his human iPhone who's sitting in the you know, his quarters with him and, and he says, no, I'm going to type these things in right now myself. He's pressing hard with the inkwell and the ink pen at this point. The emphasis is seriousness and urgency with what he's saying. Paul is remaining caustic here towards his enemies and strong here with his 
emphasis on grace. He still gives a benediction in verse 18. We read it a minute ago about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he makes no personal mention of anyone. He's not ending like he does in many of his epistles where he's, you know, greet this person, greet that person, or Timothy or Sylvanus greets you. He's not about that at this point. He's finishing strong. He's underlining what he's been saying at the end of his great epistle. He does express praise to Christ. He expresses it doxologically, but he's keeping the tone strong and the air thin. He's wrapping up with some central themes that we're going to look at. And he, he is very clear at what is at stake if the gospel is not believed or the gospel is somehow rejected. What's at stake for people's lives and their souls if the gospel is not clear as he finishes his letter. He's fighting for the new creation, spirit-regenerated gospel. It's the gospel of spiritual regeneration and birth that is by grace alone. The reality and centrality of the cross, verse 17, that from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Let me finish this and be done with this point. Let it be clear to you. That's his heart's passion physical suffering of the gospel. It indicates the centrality of the cross. He's enjoined himself with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's ending his letter emphasizing this Christological, Christ-centered, cross-centered grace gospel. You can make the fair case that Paul's passion was displayed throughout this entire letter in that perhaps Paul wrote all six chapters of this epistle by his own hand. You can take by my own hand in that Paul actually had the quill pen and said, listen, I don't need an amanuensis. I got to get this letter out. It's as if the letter courier is standing at the door. I'm going to write this in large block unseals or all caps with my own hand, pressing hard on the ink. His bodily ailment could have been failing eyesight, Galatians 4.15. He commended the Galatians for formerly they would have gouged out their own eyes for him. Probably had an eye disease. Perhaps he got it through some contraction of malaria or something like that in that region in Asia Minor. Not sure. Perhaps he had deformed hands from persecution, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care about outward attractiveness. He's scrawling this thing down so that everybody can be clear that this letter is not a forgery. This is from his own hand. We can't mess this one up. This one can't be lost in email. This one cannot be somehow Um, argued that it's not from Paul. It is my own hand with big block letters. J.B. Phillips said to arrest the eye and to rivet the mind. Note how heavily I have pressed upon the pen in writing this. He writes with passion. And Paul writes for the glory of Christ. Paul's not doing this as some kind of show. He actually stands in contrast to the opponents who are glorying in their flesh who are wanting to, verse 12, make a good showing in the flesh. It's those who want to make a good showing. The idea of boasting in your flesh is 
this phrase and then couple that with the end of verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. The opponents are being exposed for being all about them when Paul is trying to say we should be all about Christ. They're describing themselves in terms of being braggadocious and human works-oriented and self-effort. They're promoting, these false teachers are, a religion devoid of the Holy Spirit, wanting to impress others through legalism, not faith. So Paul's using a sarcasm here, again, saying they want to make a good showing. They want to make a good showing out there in their flesh. They want to really put themselves out there for themselves. The word flesh is used a couple times here, which (coughs) alludes to circumcision, something that's done physically, a physical surgery. But flesh here is far deeper than an outward thing. It's inward sinfulness, inward pride, the flesh. The flesh is something that can be so obviously observed sometimes, sometimes not so much, but many times people who are in the flesh, especially people who are religious or religious leaders operating in the flesh, it can become very obvious. Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. What were the Pharisees doing? You know, I'm giving. Here I am. I'm on the corner. I'm going to give right now. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father sees in secret. He'll reward you. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Often vain repetition where people will pray long prayers and they'll pray things over and over again to try to not be focused on the Lord, but to publicly affect the others around them is this kind of unsecret prayer life. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. I think this is why Charles Spurgeon said prayer should be like a bank transaction. You go in, you tell your banker what you need, you're very, very to the point, you're crystal clear, you receive what you need, and you leave the bank. Sometimes that's good to hear a word like that, to take the pressure off. You say, I'm not in the mood to pray. How do I pray? How do I pray eloquently? I'm not theologically read enough to pray. My heart's cold and I can't pray. Well, repent of the coldness Enter the throne room through the grace of the gospel and talk to your heavenly father. Spend time with him. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. That's what these opponents were doing. 
ramping up externals. There's two religions. There's the true gospel and there's all the fake ones. And the issue at stake is whether you have an outward focus or an inward focus. It's always one or two. It's always that way in the church, outward religion or inward spirituality. And the mantra of the false teachers, again, from Acts 15, 1, their party cry was, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, look at what's at stake here. stake here. They're saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. You're not going to heaven. These opponents were holding everyone hostage, saying you can't be saved if you are not part of the circumcision party. And they were compelling people. The word compel here, again, in verse 12, who would force you to be circumcised. Compel is forced. There's, this is the third mention of that. It's the act of being actually using legalism to leverage people and manipulate them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. In other words, the Gentile Christians were saying, oh, my heart's changed. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm transformed. I love Christ. And then these people were coming and saying, yeah, but you need to do this. If you really want to be saved for sure, you better do this. You better do that. That kind of pressure is wrong. Galatians 2.3, this was the kind of pressure they were trying to put on Titus, who was a Gentile who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. It's talking about the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Though he was a Greek, we, Paul stood up for him. Peter, James, and John, they got it. He doesn't need to be circumcised. Galatians 2, 11 through 13, though, later on, Peter comes up to these Gentile churches when Cephas, who's Peter, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Because bold Peter feared the circumcision party. He feared them. They were able to coerce him. They were able to control him. They were able to force Peter into some kind of separation. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, the missionary Barnabas was swayed, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and legalism is very, very powerful. Don't be deceived. It is. False teachers will flip the meaning of the signs that are scripturally significant. Circumcision was very significant. In the Old Testament, it's what separated Israel and the nation from all of the pagans surrounding them which was a symbol of separation of the heart. Yeah, it was for ceremonial cleanness. It was a sign of the progeneration of God's people ethnically. All of that's true and all of that's germane. But ultimately, it was a separation of the heart saying, we are not going to be swayed by your gods. We're not going there. We are different. We are distinguishable from the world. That's what circumcision meant. It's a powerful thing. Be not of the world. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Don't be conformed to this world. That's Christianity. That is gospel truth. That's what circumcision was for. Romans 2 is Paul's rebuke on the misuse of circumcision. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If you're a hypocrite and you're just doing this externally, uncircumcision. It means nothing to me or you. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will his 
uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will not that be the case? Verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code, who, who have written the code in circumcision but break the law. You code keeper, you externalist. Those who aren't even circumcised, it's as if they are circumcised because they're not hypocrites like you are. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see the motivation here? Most of your Christian sanctification will rise and fall as to whether or not you want to glory in yourself or you want to glory in Christ. If you get that right, I want the glory to go to Christ, a lot of things will fall into place for you spiritually. Glory to God, not self. And that's the hard line of distinction between the truth and error, between those who are true and those who are for themselves. Baptism is another incredible sign within the church. We're going to have a baptism soon here where people will testify of saving grace. Baptism is all about the grace of the gospel. If baptism really is about taking a shower or the removal of dirt externally to show yourself off as a super Christian, we should do away with it. Baptism, though otherwise, is an act of obedience to show that you've repented of your sins. Baptism is a is an act of repentance outwardly to say, I have inwardly repented. I'm showing you that I've repented of my sins. I'm showing you that I've been baptized into the body of Christ. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, the idea that it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by a ceremonial act of the removal of dirt. Baptism is corresponding with repentance and faith. That's what Peter is saying, not with ceremonialism. Legalists emphasize things wrongly to play churchianity, right? You can be a busy, busy, busy hypocrite. You really can. You can be super Christian, And be a complete hypocrite here at Anchorage Grace Church. You can be doing it all. Or you can be this stoic who acts like you're super spiritual. And be completely dead inside. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord Jesus quoted this. People draw near with their mouth and honor with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Even fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They even trivialize the fear of God. Listen to this rebuke. This is so scathing and strong by Jesus. Matthew 23, against the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, to make a single disciple. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It's awful, double hardness. And oh my goodness, I am almost out of time. I went 15 over last week. You won't won't forgive me twice. (laughs) Let's just move into point two. Secondly, if you want to avoid persecution, be a coward. Be a coward. The Judaizers are not only proud, but they were 
cowards, boiling everything down. They wanted to avoid persecution at all costs. They're unwilling to pay the price of persecution by being identified with Christ. They're seeing a simple surgery as something that would protect them from the Jewish opponents because they say, look, I had the surgery. I'm obviously a law keeper, so leave me alone. But this compromise neutralizes the offense of the gospel. It neutralizes the cross of Christ. It takes the path of outward instead of inward. It's dismissing the cross of Christ to avoid the danger of being hurt. And it's you're, what you're in essence doing if you avoid persecution by following an outward religion rather than sticking to truth, you're basically making a very, very bad trade. You're trading personal safety physically for imminent eternal danger spiritually. Did you catch that? What a trade. That's a terrible trade to make. Galatians 5.11 says, Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? He's saying, listen, I'm not preaching circumcision because I'm being persecuted. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If I preach circumcision, I've removed the cross. I'm not doing that. Paul was certain what was at stake. He was certain that people (coughs) who accept circumcision would be, Galatians 5, 4, severed from Christ. People who accept and believe and follow a false gospel are severed from saving grace. It's grace they never had in the first place because a true believer will persevere. They won't do that. Secular Roman historians, Tacitus and um, Suetonius of 2nd century, they associate everything Christian with the cross, the followers of a criminal crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's how they put, that's how they labeled Christians. Crucifying was not original with the Romans, but it was perfected by the Romans. And ultimately, the Romans wanted to degrade and humiliate followers of Christ. They were, it was reserved for special enemies. And ironically, Christians ultimately became called enemies of Christ. They, they actually, people who are non-Christians, Paul called enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. Here the cross is this horrible means of execution. And ultimately, it became this beautiful symbol of redemption to the point where Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, you have enemies of the cross. Paul said, I told you now, even with tears about this, I walk, of people who walk as enemies of the cross. Galatians is a crucifixion epistle. The cross are being crucified is mentioned seven times in this letter. The Jews who became Christians were shunned. They were put out of synagogues. But at the same time, they were free because they claimed Christ and him crucified. So what is it about the cross that angers people? Why does it stir people up against Christians? Why is it stirring persecution? It's because Christ died for sinners, and in doing so, he had to become a curse. When you claim the cross, you're basically proclaiming the fact that people need to be forgiven of their sins. They're under God's curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. The cross is unpalatable because it labels people. Man is a sinner who can't save himself. It's necessary for Christ to bear what we could not, to gain release from our sins by which there was no other way. Someone could find forgiveness through good works, they would. 
Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is what John Stott said about it, and I think he clarifies it better than I can. Listen to this. Every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your cross I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. All right, lastly, how do you avoid persecution? Verse 13, just be a hypocrite. Be proud. What was my second point? What? Be proud, be a coward. Thirdly, I can't blame the pollen this morning. Be proud, be cowardly, and be a hypocrite. Look, being cowardly and being hypocritical go hand in hand. These hypocrites wanted glory, and listen to how they wanted it. They wanted it through a cover-up, religious cover-up. This is not new to Christianity. Religious cover-ups happen all the time. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They don't keep the law. They're not keeping the law. They're saying, be circumcised. You have to keep the law, but they don't keep the law. I'm not sure if Paul is saying they couldn't keep the law or they knew that they were hypocritically not keeping the law, but it doesn't matter. What we know is that their devotion to the law was a desire to look impressive and they were covering up what they could not do. They, I believe they, did, they knew they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't keep the law. They couldn't do it. And so as a cover-up, they demanded and required that people keep the law. Hey, we're going to put you in a force play to cover up what we're unable to do. Romans two seventeen. you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. He's ultimately rebuking them here. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law. He's speaking to the Jews who are unbelieving. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Hypocrisy is acidic. It is just killer in terms of our witness. Don't be a hypocrite. Just own it. Own who you are. Own where you are and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. I really am that bad and far worse than you could ever know. But by the grace of God, I'm a Christian, right? Don't go the other path where you prop yourself up through your own sort of externalism. That's wrong. And binding others is double wrong to that kind of false religion. It's cowardice and it's inseparable from hypocrisy. And they were afraid of being found out. 
They knew that their hypocrisy was real. It's why they pretended to be who they were not. This has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It's pure pretense. It's pure sham. And it's not a benefit to others. They performed this outward surgery to try to cover up what was inwardly wrong. Trying to win converts and brag on their proselytes as a cover-up. Cain offered the first unacceptable religious offering, and that was the first cover-up for his sin, or for sin. It was religious. It was a religious cover-up. And since then, man has used religion to always cover up sin. Matthew 23, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. They want Moses' seat. They want to tie up heavy burdens, verse 4. They do their deeds to be seen by others. They wear long they wear phylacteries and, and broad, and, and their, their phylacteries are broad and their fringes are long. They love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. Second Timothy 3, 1 said this is going to continue. In the end, the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, appearance, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You want to avoid the proud. You want to avoid the coward. You want to avoid the hypocrite. Because the overriding motivation is self-glory where they are boasting in their flesh. Do you see this? But they desire to have you circumcised. Why are they doing the force play on these new baby Christians that they may boast, that they may brag in your flesh? This is Christian statistics from the very beginning. Hey, how many proselytes do you have? How many conversions to the law have you gotten this week? How many surgeries have been performed on your new crowd this week? It's sad. It's obsession with converts. It's church statistics instead of the power of Christ. When the power of Christ and the gospel of Christ is insufficient, the cross becomes entirely unimportant to people. The natural man does not perceive the things of the spirit. They're not going to understand how detrimental this is. The gospel is offensive and it's going to be offensive to everybody. You cannot hide in political conservatism and be safe for much longer. You can't. To the liberal, to the liberally minded person, the gospel is intolerant because it states that the only way to be saved is through the cross. So, That intolerance will never set well with the liberal. You have to have all roads that lead to heaven. But the gospel is equally offensive to the conservative-minded person because it states that without the cross, quote, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. Did you catch that? Good and bad is not measured by externalism. It's measured by God's holiness and by his accounting of us and the only saving grace For that dilemma comes through a wooden cross. It's not just two beams of what we're talking about. We're talking about the redemption that was bought for us 2,000 years ago at Calvary by Christ alone. His shed blood, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That saving grace is our only grace 
So we pray for the person who's trusting in any kind of politics to be saved, any kind of other religion to be saved, any kind of other false god to be saved, any kind of agnosticism to be saved, any kind of atheism to be saved, any kind of spirituality that's not truly the Holy Spirit to be saved, any kind of devil worship. We pray for those people. We reach out to those people with the power of Christ and the power of the gospel that can transform their hearts. Christ is the only way.